Happy New Year to you. Well, you are the bold, brave, and beautiful. You got up and made it. You made it. You're amazing. You committed Christian to you. That's really great. And I want to say thank you to David and Megan um, for working hard. Da- David, David uh, again, 20 years, he came to our church with his family when 12? Something like that? How old were you? 12 years old. And he, he served in every capacity in our, our world. He was our sound director. He ran the board, did what those guys are doing back there. Uh, he was hired by us in school. You were still in school, weren't you? Yeah, he was hired by us to do everything we didn't want to do. <laughs> and, and began to show grace and anointing and was my personal assistant for a period of a year. Um, he was the worst ever. And... Uh, <laughs> At least I knew what he wasn't called to do. That's right. <laughs> but he is a son in this house. And um, I trust him. I trust him and his bride, Megan, with my life and with our ministry, with the vision that we have for the city, and with you. And I could not ask for a greater couple to be leading this work than them. Appreciate you. A lot. A lot. All right. Well, Happy New Year to you. And, and my bride is here, too. Cynthia's here. Yes, just wave. Say hey. Say hey. We just celebrated 30 years in December. So that's cool. Yeah. She needs a medal. And today I'd like to, to see if I can give you a message that helps you start afresh or look at some things a little differently. 2017. Now, I'm, I must say, uh, I'm deferring to Jermaine on this because he already said how important it was for his family to have oral commitments about what a resolution looks like every year. Um, we ignore all resolutions, everyone. We don't even try. And it's not because I don't think commitments are important. I just haven't been able to discern the difference spiritually between July 17th and January 1st. I just haven't. I, I think I'm still as accountable in July as I am in January to do the, the highest and best thing. I'm still accountable. Now, we love it when the calendar turns over and that feels like, oh, I have a fresh start. And that's true. But that's the way I look at every day. And so I'm not looking for a particular moment in the calendar year to prompt me to be more right. I'm just looking for the sun to come up. And every day it does. And as a result, that's my prompt. Okay, let's be a little bit better today than we were yesterday. Let's do a little bit more. I've got six things that I prioritize my life around every day. And they all phonetically start with Fs. Phonetic Fs, because some are PHs. <laughs> I need to be philanthropic, so I need to be a giver. This is, I get up in the morning and I go to bed thinking, how did I do today on this? Philanthropic. I need to practice fitness, so I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get some more abs, too. Yeah, Fitness, so eating right and working out, resting. Philomathy, which is the love of learning. So I'm, I'm a biology major. Uh, it was 30-some-odd years ago, but I, um, I get a magazine called Scientific American every month, and I read it from cover to cover. 
I love science. It expands my understanding of life, and that's just me. I don't study a whole lot of other things, but the study of science and what they're coming up with today, it seems to, as we continue to go on with our understanding of how the universe works, it's one confirmation after another that God did what he said he did. I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by it. It's really neat. So the love of learning, philomathy. I want to be filled by God, number four, every day, every day. I, I, want, I want to make sure I'm fruitful every day, that, that there's something of my day that produces something for the kingdom, and I want to make sure I'm faithful every day, faithful to my God, faithful to my friends, faithful to my family. I live by those five things. Now, if I am striving, skip six things, if I'm striving to do that every day, I'm not quite sure what January first does for me because I'm doing all the stuff in July that I would be doing in January. Now, I'm not against resolutions. I think they're great as long as they become lifestyle and not just a fad to make you feel better about a month because by February, you're done. Whatever that resolution was, you finished. You're back in your old routine again. But today, I'd like to give you some ideas that might encourage you to think about life a little differently and to say, Lord, help me to incorporate, weave these threads of truth into the tapestry of my life in such a way that I might be better for you regularly. So turn with me over to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 5. Verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. The title of this message is A Different Approach. A Different Approach. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 17. Paul is writing. And he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 16, therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him in this way no longer. Therefore, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Lord, help as we study. Three things about this passage I'd like to speak to you. One, that we need to love differently. Two, we need to see differently. And three, we need to know differently. Love differently, see differently, and know differently. And I've chosen this passage because the, 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 the point that he is trying to make from everything that he said from verses 14 through 16 is in verse 17. That we are new. We're new. New creations. That, that word new means something that has never been before. There's nothing about Christianity that is reformation in its scope only. It's about transformation. So God's not trying to make just a better version of the old you. Amen. He's not trying to revamp, kind of refurbish this version which was lacking so much to try to add a few tools to it and, and, and maybe paint the, the, the walls a little bit. And he's not trying to do that. He's trying to demolish the old and bring in something that has never existed before. This is what it means that we are new creations in Christ. 
Just as there was no Adam before there was an Adam, there was no you like there is a you now. There was an old you, but there's no you like there is a you after you get born again. Brand new. Now, it takes quite a while for the new you to, to overcome the old you because the old you has habit patterns. It thinks the old way. It says the old things. It does the old acts. And you've got to learn by way of discipleship how to walk in the footsteps of Christ, how to speak his words, how to think his thoughts, and let your heart be motivated by his, by his love and compassion. So those things are things that need to be trained in your life, but it doesn't, because you have not gotten them down yet, it doesn't deny the fact that you are new. You are brand new. Nothing like you has ever been before. And every once in a while, even though you see you on the regular, you need to look in the mirror and say, that's not me. I'm something different. Because you always contextualize yourself in what you were yesterday. And you need to look in the mirror and say, I'm not what I was yesterday. Because I'm being renewed daily. When I got right with God, I changed. There's nothing about me that is like what should have been before, what was before. And because I'm being renewed by his word daily, being transformed by the renewing of my, my mind, I'm not even the same person I was last week. That's what Paul's getting at. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to talk about, since everybody's talking about newness today, that we talk about what it really means to be biblically new. A different approach. Paul says this, the love of Christ controls me. Now, you always have to put things in context. So when he's speaking about this, he's talking to a group of people that have, for the most part, kind of disrespected his ministry. In the first letter he wrote to the church at Corinth, which is actually the second, because in the first letter, he describes a letter that he wrote to them prior. We don't have that letter inscripturated. But we do know that he wrote something. So the first letter is actually the second, and the second is actually the third. So Paul has had to write to the church at Corinth three times. He only wrote to the church at Ephesus once. If somebody has to talk to you a long time about something, it's generally not good. It means you're probably not getting it. Now, we don't, what, we don't know what the first letter said, but we do know that the second letter, Paul was trying to commend himself constantly to these people who were throwing off his leadership. This is where we get the, the, the phrase, you have not many fathers, but you have a bunch of teachers. Because they were looking at people who were eloquent, and they think, boy, he can, that dude can talk. I mean, he can really preach. And Paul, by his own admission, wasn't very profound in his presentation. His information, yes. But his presentation seemed to be lacking something of a magnetism whereby people would be drawn. And it was said of him that he was not just not good at speaking, contemptible. I don't even know what that means when you're talking about a preacher. I hope I am never described as that. (laughs) Though I would love to be identified with Paul in many ways, that's not one contemptible in his speech. So Paul didn't have it all going on when he came to alliteration. When he came, now he could write. You talk about a communicator with a pen. This dude was amazing. And his thought process with respect to philosophy as it applied to religion, amazing again, amazing, squared. 
the analogies he brings from the Old Testament to the New in order to make a New Testament point, you just go, wow, where'd you get that? Because Peter didn't have it. And Peter looks at Paul's writings, though everybody knew he wasn't a great speaker, looks at his writings and says, that dude, when he writes, I don't even understand what he's saying. I, hard to grasp. He was a thinker. And he knew how to pin things in such a way as that the common man, even though the concepts were difficult, the common man could understand. Could understand the English or the Greek by which he was writing. You had to put your brain to work to try to figure out spiritually how do I apply it to my life and what he's trying to draw from the Old Testament. But I'm telling you what, nobody could communicate the idea of how circumcision was not applicable for salvation today and being legitimate as as if you were a spiritual Jew. Nobody communicated it like Paul did. And he did it in many, many different ways. And so you're looking at this saying, man, the guy can write, but he can't talk. So they kind of threw him off for all these other fellas in, in the second, which is the first letter we have, but the second letter. And then in this book, in the second letter, he's having to, in the first chapter, justify why he didn't come to him when he said he was coming to him. And so they were saying, see, he's not faithful. He says he's coming, he won't show. Coming to somebody who lived 300 or 400 miles away was more than a plane flight. Do you know how many things could happen on the way? Somebody might get severely ill. And there were no hospitals, no mini clinics. What you gonna do? You got you gotta find some place to care for. Things could happen on the way. If you just went A to B without stopping, it would take you three to four months. And they were mad that he didn't show. He said, Listen, I tried, but the Lord didn't let me come. Don't think that my yes is no or my no is yes. When I say yes, I mean yes, but I just couldn't make it to you. And secondly, if I'd made it in chapter two, he then begins to say, I'm I'm almost glad, though, I didn't make it because I didn't want to come to you in sorrow because everything I write to you seems to be corrective, and I don't want to be that way, and I was coming to you in sorrow because I don't know what you had done with the guy that I reproved in the first book, the first letter I gave you, and so I didn't want to come that way, so I'm awful glad, kind of, sort of, that I wasn't able to make it to you, but I wanted to come. I just didn't want to come that way, and then in chapter 3, he says, I need to commend myself to you again as being legitimate. I'm a minister of the gospel. Do you all remember I birthed you? Chapter 4, then he has to prove himself by talking about all the junk through which he's been day and night out in the sea. Betrayed by brethren, naked, beaten with rods. These other apostles, they will brag about all of their conquests spiritually, how they defeated the devil and cast him out here and birthed churches there and saw people won here and their stats are amazing. I'll tell you mine. I've gotten no respect from anybody, yet I find joy in serving my God. I'm not looking for your approval. I'm just letting you know I've been through some stuff, and you would be well off to not ignore it. And so what's sad about the first four chapters is that this guy has to reprove himself to a people he won. And this is why he starts with, in the passage we read today, the love of Christ controls or constrains me. What's he saying? You ever, you ever, you ever feel like you, you want to go off on somebody? Yeah. I mean, they have just so frustrated you. 
They have, they have disrespected you. They haven't honored you. They haven't recognized your sacrifice. Does that sound like any little people in your houses? <laughs> the 15-year-old that just doesn't get it and doesn't realize all that you have done to bring him to this point. Or a friend. Or somebody else, your employer, your supervisor, a coworker. Boy, you just want, you want to give them not just a piece of your mind, but all of it. But then all of a sudden, your Christianity and your theology kicks in. And you suppress your flesh intentionally. Why? Because the love of Christ is controlling you. It took Paul five chapters and a couple of letters to say what could have been said in one sentence. You all need to repent for disrespecting me. But he controlled himself the entire time. And he allowed explanation to be that which would be tender and kind and entreating rather than authoritative, begging them even to be reconciled to God. And he was talking about not just getting, he wasn't talking about getting saved. If you look further in this chapter, at the end of it, he says, we're, you know, new creations in Christ, old things passed. And we have been made ministers of reconciliation. And we've been given this gift. And as a result of being given this gift, we now are ambassadors for Christ. And we are entreating you. This is the end of his point for the first five chapters. We are entreating you, begging you, be reconciled to God. Because if you're reconciled to God right, you'll be reconciled to me. I'm not even begging you to accept me anymore. I just want you to be right with God. The love of Christ controlled his mouth. It controlled his hand in writing. He dictated most of his letters. But you get my point. Whatever he was doing, the love of Christ pulled him back. What controls you? Does your job control you? Finances control you? Do you find yourself fearful rather than full of faith, full of fear when things aren't what they should be, when your finances are a little funny or your health isn't what it should be or your relationship seems to be on the rocks, you got difficulty? That's when you find out the dominant force in your life. Is it fear or is love? controlling you. And it's not just the love on the inside. It's the love that God has for you. You need, to, you need to understand how much he loves you. And I'm convinced that Paul had a revelation of that love that is not articulated in Scripture, though he does a really good job of telling people how much God loved him. Namely, I was the chief of sinners, he says. Nobody was worse than me. But God wanted to display his mercy by granting me clemency and let everybody know if he could do it for me. The chief of sinners, he can do it for you. He does a good job of that. But he doesn't give us any history other than the fact that he persecuted the church. And, and this we almost know for certain, though we can't find it to be true, that Paul knew who Jesus was before Jesus went to the cross. Now, how do I know that? Well, Paul was a Pharisee. And who were the people who were most against Christ when he came to Jerusalem and tried to, to minister? The Pharisees. 
And did not Jesus do most of his ministry in Jerusalem at the feasts? I mean, his hometown was a region of Galilee, but Nazareth was his hometown, and then Capernaum as he grew up. So it was that region of Galilee. But he would come down for the feasts, three of them a year, uh, Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, and Feast of uh, Passover. And he would come down each, each time, and each time he had to stay a week. And sometimes if ministry went on, he stayed a little longer. Well, every good Jew was supposed to be at the feast three times a year. Every male was supposed to appear before God for every feast. Don't you think Paul showed up? And don't you think that Jesus being in the temple, ministering to people, Paul being a Pharisee, having to be there at the same time, and the Pharisees questioning who this Jesus was and doing everything they could to try to discredit him, don't you think Paul would have at least heard something about this Jesus? He was, he, he was only three years younger than Christ. He was in his 30, he was 30 years old when Jesus was, was being crucified. So he was up and coming, yet he had not been dispatched as an authoritative Pharisee because he hadn't reached the age of 30 yet. And so he would have been under somebody's tutelage. And at the age of 30, that's when the authority would be conferred upon him to have the governmental responsibility to carry out the wishes of the governing body. But he wasn't 30 yet. So we think he was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 26, 27. But everybody knew this kid's on the rise because when we see the church beginning to, to emerge, who becomes the primary persecutor? Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul, which meant he had been trained in this thing for quite some time. Long way around to the front door, he knew who Jesus was when Jesus was ministering on the planet. And this is why he says, his love for me constrains me. Because when having that background, does it give you a brand new view of when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus? That's the first encounter we have in Scripture. And when he meets him on the road to Damascus, Saul is on his way. Paul was Saul beforehand. He was on his way to persecute people like us, Christians, put some folk in jail. And all of a sudden, this light appeared out of no place. And he heard this voice saying, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul had to say, um, I, I, I don't know who you are. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Oh. Oh, boy. How long have I messed up? How long have I thought wrong? Two chapters ago, I just killed Stephen. Last month. Two chapters ago, I just killed Stephen. I was the one at whom they laid their cloaks so that they, I was the authority that gave them the right to execute Stephen. I never knew you like I know you now. I didn't, I didn't know. And this is why Paul was able to say, I received mercy in Timothy because I was ignorant. Even though he knew what he was doing. And you know what you're doing. Aren't you glad calls you ignorant? Aren't you glad he calls you? You never want to be more glad than, than that when somebody calls you ignorant than when God calls you ignorant. You know what you're doing, but you don't know what you're doing. Father, forgive them. They have no clue. 
Have mercy on them. And God continually does so. He had mercy on Saul of Tarsus. And so he realizes this love that was given to me, I sure didn't deserve. And though I want to tell you off, Corinthians, you have disrespected me in the highest way. There is no, there is no sin, familiarly speaking, that is greater than the disrespect that a, that a child might have for his father. That is massive. You have disrespected me greatly. But the love of Christ controls me. It brings me back. It hymns me in. It pulls the reins and makes the bit in my mouth not say what I want to say. I beg you, in 2017, let the love of Christ control you like that. Speak tenderly when you are spoken evilly to. When folks begin to persecute you and say all kinds of lies, don't feel so, so urgent about trying to defend yourself. Don't feel like your reputation is on the line when somebody hits you on the Internet, when they do something, do something through social network, and now you've got to fight for yourself because it's going to spread and everybody's going to know the wrong thing. Just identify with Mary. I, I don't get amens on that point hardly at all, <laughs> and I understand why. Identify with Mary, who had to deal with the accusation that she was at least loose. At worst, considered an adulterer. Because even though you were engaged, the engagement process was so contractual in its orientation and that the man had to pay a bride price to the father of his intended in the amount of sometimes our equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were considered already committed to one another, though they were not married. And if you called off the engagement, you actually had to issue a certificate of divorce. That's how serious it was. And so Joseph was going to do that. And we don't see Mary chiming up and saying, you don't understand. We don't see Mary doing any of that. And you talk about a woman. Boy, she's my hero. And I know the Catholics may have taken it too far, but I'm going to take, take it a far away. I'm not going to talk to her. I ain't going to talk to her. I'm not. She doesn't need to talk. She, there's nothing she needs to hear from me. And nor can she answer anything when I ask her. There's no reason to have a conversation with Mary. But she's an amazing woman. Make sure that the love of Christ for the people who are hurting you constrains you. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. For your reward is great in heaven. Let the love of Christ control you relationally secondly we need to we need to see differently he said the love of Christ controls us for we, we recognize that once one died and therefore all died and, and he, he, he bridges he connects these two concepts without any kind of verbal or grammatical bridge and you just have to read through all the rest of his writings to understand that if Jesus died for all of us and we have accepted that which he has given in, in his life, then that means that we all died with him in order to receive his life. And I don't have time to go into all of the things there, but that's what he's saying. 
since he died for all, that meant we all died. That we don't have to die anymore, and we get his life. And therefore, since he died for all, all died, and through him we all might live. Therefore, he says, we recognize no one according to the flesh. You need to see differently in 2017. See differently. Sin, yours, and everybody else's messes up your vision. You remember Adam? Adam was there in the garden. God said, don't eat from this tree. He ate from the tree. And what was, what was the first, first thing that was commented about what happened to them as a result of eating from the tree of which they were not to eat? It says the eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they recognized that they were naked. Now, one of these obvious things, and I have tender ears in the room, so I'm going to be very PG. When it comes to a man and a woman who are committed in marriage, generally speaking, clothes are always optional. I mean, that's just life. That's just life. Clothes are optional. So why in the world would Adam and Eve be concerned about not having any clothes on? Their husband and wife. What's the big? There's nobody else on the planet. (laughs) It's just them. Why are they concerned? Because they have never seen each other like this. Sin messes up your vision. See, when he first saw Eve, it was a moment. He was asleep. God took a rib out, fashioned into the woman. The rib he had taken from the man. Then it says God brought her to the man. So it meant when he took the rib out, he took Eve away. And I don't know what they were doing, but there must have been some kind of conversation between God and Eve whereby he was establishing a relationship with her just like he had done with Adam because it says he brought her to him. And when he saw her, this is what he said. Woo! You talk about top 10. Any top 10 model you might see would be a one on this scale. She was amazing beyond what anything we've ever seen. So much so, he said, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'm changing your da- last name, girl. You're going to be my wife right now. No dating, you my wife. He was so, that's what his eyes saw. Untainted by sin. Now after sin, Adam, did you eat from the tree of which I told you not to eat? Well, about that. See, it was this woman. It was this woman that you gave me. I was asleep. I was asleep. I like woke up and there she was. So what my fault? Two months ago, dude, she was bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Now you're throwing her under the bus. His eyes saw her differently than he had ever seen her. And she saw him differently. They were ashamed and they had to cover themselves. Sin exposes shame, both on our part and the other party. And what we try to do as best as we can is we try to cover it up with all kinds of lies. We use fig leaves, excuses. Well, I didn't mean to. You know that's really not me. No, it is you. It is you. 
But we don't want people to see that part of us because we're not quite sure what they're going to do with it. Are they going to reject us? Is it going to be another confirmation of everything I know to be true about me, which is, I'm a mess, I just don't want anybody else to know. Now somebody knows what's going to happen to me. We go through all of these machinations in our mind, not knowing what the consequences will be, and so we do our best to try to cover it up with circumstantial fig leaves. But circumstantial fig leaves always dry up. But we need covering. We need covering. And so God knew that. And he went out and killed an animal. Something died. Adam died on the inside, but something had to die immediately. And the animal died, and the animal skins were placed on them so their shame would be covered. And though animals are not used anymore, we have the blood of Christ to do the same. God wants to cover us regularly. Don't cover yourself. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. It might work for a minute, but it doesn't last. The ultimate goal is not to be forgiven. That's on the process to being covered. The ultimate goal is to be covered. That's what blood is supposed to do. Cover you and erase any stain. That's the grace of Almighty God. Now, we as new creatures are supposed to agree with what God has done in our personal lives and in the lives of others. This is why Paul said, since he died, and we all died, and we all now live, we are new creations. We, in essence, have been covered. Therefore, we regard nobody according to the flesh. I'm not going to look at you when you hurt me as somebody who needs to be placed in the prison of that offense. I'm not going to lock you up in that last hurt and then place you there for the rest of your life, put you at arm's distance yeah, you remember what you did? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we ain't boys no more. We ain't boys no more. I'm not going to do that. I choose to now look at you as God does, as somebody who is covered by his blood. I'm not going to regard you according to your carnal nature, but according to how God created you. You're covered. And Paul says, and this is the evidence that I have for him knowing Christ beforehand. This is the only portion I've got here. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, though we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. He doesn't say you. He says we. Now, he could be talking corporately and just kind of inserting himself in the corporate place of humanity, but it's my sense that he's speaking personally as well as others who may have also known who Christ was when he was in the flesh. We used to regard him as such and such, but we don't do that anymore. So we look at you differently. And this is how the love of Christ can practically help you constrain that which you would do otherwise. Is that your eyes now see things differently. You see through d- redemption. And, and you know the concept of forgive and forget? I don't know. I, forgetting would be helpful, I guess, yeah. Forgiving is always imperative. But forgetting is not a command. And I guess it would be helpful, I guess. Except nobody gets the spiritual gift of amnesia. It just doesn't come. And by the way, God doesn't have it. So I know there's a passage that he says he throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. and He remembers our sins no more. I know that. But he's not saying he just forgot. 
He can't do that. He just doesn't remember them according to your consequence or like you. He remembers them differently. Listen to me. He has to remember your sin because his son has nail prints in his hands. How did he get those things except that we blew it? And he will forever have those. So he can't forget. What he does is he remembers differently. He doesn't remember them according to what you deserve as a result of having done them. He remembers them according to what his son did so you don't deserve the judgment. That's how we need to look at people. Not according to what they've done, but according to what God has done for them. And that's how we keep relationships going. It is the divine redemptive patchwork that fixes any offense in your life. That's a good place to insert an amen, by the way. Amen. Lastly, we need to know differently. We need to know differently. <clears throat> it is important for us to understand what it means to be new creatures in Christ. We need to know that the old has passed away and the new has become. The old is gone and that you nor anybody around you needs to contextualize your life and what it used to be. And I know it's hard because you can touch your past. A dear friend of mine, and here's, here, here's, here's a practical example and I'm closing. And some of y'all who are Redskins fans will like this. My dear friend, Kirk Cousins, because I'm chaplain of the Skins, know real well. And, and everybody is looking at his rise and that he has done so well. And, and, and they're saying, I, I just don't know whether it's, it's true or not. Is this real what we're looking at? And we've got a large enough sample to say, yeah. Now, I am completely biased and unapologetic about it. <laughs> but the reason... It's almost unbelievable to us is because he's so close to his past failure. And this man loves God with all his heart. You have no idea the stuff through which he's been spiritually and what he's come through that has made him who he is. He's a miracle, and nobody can figure it out. No, he's got talent. I can't do what he can do, even with God's help. <laughs> I can't do that. I don't have that talent. So he's got talent. But the Lord is helping this boy every day. It was just two years, two seasons ago that he was October of 2014. Four interceptions in 11 plays. You almost have to try to do that. That's hard to do. Four picks in 11 plays. That's just two seasons ago. And now he's amazing. And because he's so close to his past, people continue to contextualize him in what they considered failure. But he has distanced himself from that. He's not that anymore. It ought to be a divine athletic picture for you to let you know how quickly your life can change. If you will no longer contextualize yourself in your last offense, whether it was last week or 10 years ago, God can do something in your life miraculous and help you and move you to a brand new spot, a place to which you never thought you could be on your own. But if you stay holding on to what you did, oh, it was so bad, I'm really sorry, and you stay in this wallowing of condemnation, you will never experience the grace of restoration to bring you to the place where you need to be. You need to know 
that your old is gone and there is a new. And you need to have other people around you who help you with that. Speak life into you. I walk into my house every day telling my children, you're amazing. I'm just so privileged to have you as my, have, have you as my children. You are great. You know you're great. I tell them that all the time. And I tell my staff, you are great. Send them texts. You're great. And that's after they made the biggest blunder on a Sunday morning you can make. They just said the wrong thing and messed up and said wrong theology. I said, don't worry about it. You're great. We can fix that. Change this. But you're amazing. I just came from over there, and one of my men did some stuff wrong. So I was texting all during his exhortation, letting him know, don't do that. Say this wrong. Don't do that. You did that. And, 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 and in the middle, I said, you're amazing. You're learning. You're doing great. I don't let him stay in the, in the place of his last offense. Bring him out. You've got to have people around you because it's hard to pull yourself up. I mean, you should be able to do it. You ought to get in your Bible every day and read the encouragement necessary to pull you up from the place out of which you've been, get you out of your ditch. That ought to be the norm. But you cannot substitute the people that need to be around you, and that's why you've got to be in a good local church like this one. That's <laughs> a good segue, Brad. Excellent, excellent. With Pastor Megan and Pastor David and, and Jermaine and all the staff here helping you. Become what you could not become on your own. People speaking life into you every day. Love differently in 2017. See differently in 2017. Know differently. And God will do some amazing things. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you.